Today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Um, It's on page 6 of the bulletin, if you'd like to follow along with me as I read. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. Thank you, Kwaku. All right. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Let's ask for God to help us. God, we thank you for this time, a a moment in time that you foreknew, that you have set apart, that you have uh, loaded up with grace because you promise to do something unique and special when your word is preached and heard and received. We want to believe those promises. We want to believe that this time is going to be effectual in our lives, changing our lives. Jesus, help us to see you. Give us ears to hear, every one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, do you know the forgiveness of Jesus? Do you know his forgiveness? A paralyzed man was carried to Jesus one day. We're told he was lying on a mat. Paralysis, of course, is a tragic condition today, even with the availability of technology and social support systems. So imagine just how much more devastating this condition was in the ancient world. Surely he would have been debilitated not only physically, but also economically, emotionally too. He's probably empty of hope, full of fear, maybe like some of you here today. Which is probably why Jesus says to him, take heart, son, strengthening his heart with affection as a parent. Here's a man who really needed help, right? Whose need was obvious before your very eyes, literally. Surely Jesus would help. Don't miss it. This here was a dramatic moment. Jesus by now had a growing reputation as a healer. It's why these men brought the paralytic to him in the first place. 
And the readers of Matthew's gospel, too, they've been hearing about Jesus' miracles, a few of which we studied together last week. So anticipation is building. You know where this is heading, what Jesus is about to do. The drama is mounting. Do it again, Jesus, and your eyes are almost fixated upon the paralyzed man's legs. Just waiting, watching. Jesus opens his mouth, and you can almost hear the crowd draw its collective breath. And he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. What? Weird. First things first, Jesus, no? Uh, Maybe he didn't notice the man's immobile legs. Your sins are forgiven? I mean, isn't that kind of like flying down to Louisiana and offering flood victims, uh, are you interested in a new magazine subscription? I mean, missing the point, blind to needs, real needs. I mean, that's nice, Jesus, forgiveness, but we've got some urgent needs here. But you see, Jesus isn't ignoring the man's disabled body. He's simply healing the man's disabled soul. As pastor and author Alastair Begg noted, The man needed God's reconciliation more than he needed new legs. Now, that almost sounds cruel and uncaring, except we remember that within a few moments, Jesus is going to give the man new legs too. It's as if Jesus said, we've got some urgent needs here. Your sins are forgiven. Because this man, yes, this paralyzed man, this man's greatest need was the forgiveness of his sins. His greatest need was to be reconciled with God and to be restored into rich, life-giving communion with God. That was his greatest need. And it's the same for you and me. You see, too many of us don't think we really need God's forgiveness. We're either hoping God grades on a curve or hoping he just doesn't really care. We forget that the Bible actually takes our sin seriously because it takes our humanity seriously. Do you know that your accountability before God is one of the highest compliments that God can pay you as a human being? As author and teacher John Stott has wisely written, to say that someone is not responsible for his actions is to demean him or her as a human being. It is part of the glory of being human that we are held responsible for our actions. And of course, that includes when our actions are immoral actions, unloving actions, unjust actions, selfish actions, which warrant the judgment of God. Far too many of us live our lives trying to achieve forgiveness ourselves, cleansing ourselves morally. It's why some of us are so busy at work. 
or so busy working for social approval or so busy working for social causes or busy with church activity because we're quietly but desperately trying to atone for some past failure, some past wrong. It's why so many of us are delaying dealing with our sins and wrongs. About a week ago, my wife asked me to help her with something that was hard for her to do physically because, you know, she's pregnant. And I was reluctant to serve my, yes, nine-month pregnant wife, nearly nine months. And so I sighed loudly and dragged my feet and made excuses and made this snide remark towards her, to which she responded, ew. And there couldn't have been a more appropriate response from her because my selfish heart in that moment was filthy, right? But my point in mentioning this is that I didn't say anything to her after that moment until this morning. Because I really don't believe that my sin constitutes my greatest need before God. Delaying dealing with wrongs. Pushing them off because, hey, God, we've got things to do. I've got more important needs to address. More pressing things. I'm not paralyzed, but we've got logistics. And we've got money needs and we've got practical needs. No, you've got your greatest need before God. What does forgiveness mean? It means that your moral debt for all your sins, past, present, and future, have been canceled by God. It means he doesn't count your sins against you. Forgiveness means God wipes your slate clean, clean, and gives you a new beginning. Not just day to day, but moment to moment. It means if you've embraced Jesus, there's no bad thing that you can do That'll ever make God love you any less. And there's no good thing that you can do that can ever make God love you more because he's already forgiven you and loved you unchangeably and perfectly. That's good news. Forgiveness means God doesn't treat you as your sins deserve. With resentment and retribution. It means God never gives you a cold shoulder or offers you the silent treatment, as I'm prone to do. It means, in fact, if you're in Christ, he treats you as if you had loved God and neighbor perfectly according to the moral law of God, deserving, yes, deserving every imaginable blessing from God. You in Christ are forgiven of all your sins. Amen. 
And sometimes even though it's declared before you as in these last few moments, it's still hard to really believe and internalize. And so hallelujah that God gives us in his word pictures, images to help this promise of forgiveness sink in kind of through a different doorway into our soul. Not just by words, but through the aesthetics of his words and promises in his word. So, for example, we have in Leviticus 16 the story of the Day of Atonement. This was when all of God's people annually would come together and confess their corporate sins from the entire past year. And, of course, you may be familiar with the symbolic animal sacrifices that were offered up. A goat or a lamb that would be killed, symbolizing the penalty that would be brought upon this animal instead of you for the forgiveness of your sins. But there was another symbol that you may not be as familiar with, and it comes right after the description of this sacrifice. You can find this in Leviticus 16. Listen to this. The high priest will then lay both his hands on the second second goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer, symbolically, the people's sins to the head of the goat. Okay, so now we got this filthy goat, symbolically, right? Carrying all the sins of all the people of the last year, collectively. Now, then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. Go. And as the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. And you say, a desolate land, where is that? And the answer is this. Think about how profound this is. Where is that? We don't know. Because he's gone. All your sins. And so if you're an Israelite, a person that's watching this, experiencing this, you might turn to each other and you say, hey, what happened to the goat? We lost him. He's never been seen since. What do you mean? What happened to our sins? They're gone. They're lost. They've been forgotten. They've disappeared. And most importantly, not just from your sight, but from God's. Which is why the psalmists and the prophets pick up on this metaphor and they give you sure promises. Like the one we find in Jeremiah when God says, I have taken their transgressions and their iniquities and I remember their sins no more. In Psalm 103, familiar to many of you, where the psalmist says, for as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from my sight. This is God's promise of forgiveness. He's taken all of your wrongs, the selfishness of your heart, your motives, your thoughts, your words, your deeds. And he's obliterated them from the moral record of this universe. 
He has canceled your debt. He has set you free. Second image, second picture I want to bring before you, a beautiful picture of forgiveness in chapter 3 of the book of Zechariah. The prophet there sees a man named Joshua, a priest, standing before an angel of the Lord, almost as if in a courtroom. And we're told that Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes, symbolizing the filth of our sins, just dirty garments head to toe. You need to picture this in your heart and in your minds. What would it look like if you were today to wear your selfishness? What would it feel like for you to be clothed in your sin? What would that look like? What would that feel like? But there's more to the story. We're told that in this vision, Satan whose nickname is the accuser, was also there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Joshua. Because you've been there. Because you know how it can sound in your head, those voices, those accusations. You're a terrible Christian. You don't deserve grace. God ought to give up on you. Now that's it. Oh, that's sin. That one's too big to be forgiven. Or man, didn't you just do that yesterday? You think he'll forgive you again? You're too ugly to God. You don't deserve to be loved by God. And you have these doubts and these questions. What if he's right? What if he persuades the judge? What if God agrees with his accusations? But there's more to this story. We're told that in this moment, the Lord turns to Satan and says to him these most remarkable words. I, the Lord, reject your accusation, Satan. The Lord rebukes you. Do you hear that? All accusations against you. True and false. All accusations against you because of your sin are rejected. But that's not all. There's more to the story. Joshua's still standing there in his filthy garments as we are. Covered by the filth of our sin. And the angel says, take off his filthy clothes. And then he turns to Joshua and announces, See, I have taken away your sins, and now I am giving you these fine new clothes. And they put a clean priestly turban on Joshua's head and dress him in new clothes. If you could just picture yourself, that if you're in Christ, picture yourself exchanging each of your soiled and stained and stinking pieces of clothing. For new, fresh, clean, sweet-smelling, radiant garments, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And just so you know, all this took place with God's unchanging approval, not in a back room out of his sight, not sneaking it past him. Zechariah 3, 5 is careful to, state, careful to state that this took place while the angel of the Lord stood by. 
Do you know, friends, if you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven? I urge you, if you are a professing Christian, and perhaps this is not new news to you, I pray that it will ring new in your heart again today. Do not, I urge you, do not look past the forgiveness of your sins. Are there things in your life presently that you are treating as your greatest need rather than paying proper attention to your soul's need to believe in God's promises of grace? Or if you're new to the Christian faith, to grapple with your accountability before God, perhaps even opening your hand, perhaps even today to receive his forgiveness for all of your sins by the mercy and the grace of God. Friends, we learn here not only about the forgiveness of Jesus, we also learn about the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. See, some men brought to Jesus a paralyzed man lying on the mat, and Jesus says to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiving. Jesus is showing his authority. And you say where and how. Well, listen to verse 3. When the religious leaders hear what Jesus has said, they say to themselves, what? Well, wow, this fellow is so compassionate. No. Or this, this teacher, this fellow is God's true messenger offering forgiveness. No, no, no. What do they say? This fellow is blaspheming, blaspheming. To blaspheme or to commit blasphemy is to slander God, to speak evil against God. Jesus didn't even mention God. How could he be guilty of blasphemy? Well, to understand what's going on here, you have to retrace the logic of this conversation. Jesus meets a total stranger, right? He looks at the guy and then out of nowhere says, I forgive you of all of your sins. This makes sense for Jesus to say only if he believed, number one, that the man had somehow committed moral offenses against Jesus personally, though he had never met him in all of his life until that moment. And secondly... That Jesus had the moral authority to forgive all of this man's sins. Every year in Providence, where I went to college, the mayor of Providence, his name was Buddy Cianci, would make his rounds to the graduation ceremonies of all the local colleges. And every year, at the end of the graduation ceremony, he would get up front and he would congratulate the senior class and then at the end of his remarks, he would announce, and all the students learned to anticipate this great announcement, he would announce with great fanfare, I hereby declare to all graduates that all your parking tickets are canceled. And everyone would erupt in a roar of applause and cheers because there's no greater thing for a graduating senior to hear, apparently, right? Now imagine if I had stood up in that moment at one of those graduations, imagine if I had said, ah, all your parking tickets are canceled. Imagine if I said that to you right now. Well, you would either shrug or laugh. 
what would have been the student's reaction? Well, nothing. No cheers. Crickets. Why? Because I have no legal authority. And even if I say to a student, but I, I really want this for you, it wouldn't do them any good, would it? Thanks, but you don't have the legal authority to forgive those parking tickets. The religious leaders were saying, you don't have the moral authority to forgive sins. Jesus says, I do. Or let's say you're at home and you get into an argument with your roommate or your spouse or friend. And let's say things get so heated up that you find yourself yelling, you're such an idiot. Harsh words. And then right at that moment, let's say the doorbell rings, terrible timing, and you answer the door, of course, in that moment a bit awkwardly, and guess who it is? It's me. Hi, it's me, I'm there. And I stammer out the words, looking sort of morose, don't worry about it. And confused, you say, worry about what? And you notice the tears in my eyes as I continue, I forgive you your bad temper and your harsh words. And I throw my arms around you with a warm hug. I mean, after I leave, you might be thinking, wow, he's gone off the deep end. Or, or wait a minute, th those weren't his wrongs to forgive. But I'll tell you one thing you won't be saying, one thing your roommate or your spouse won't be saying, is, oh, he's so sweet. He forgave your sins against me. Look, Jesus is making the boldest of claims that we absolutely and utterly miss. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to have the moral authority to forgive all sins. He's claiming to have been personally offended in every one of our sins. We totally missed this. The religious leaders apparently didn't, did they? C.S. Lewis points out that this story is one of the clearest yet most overlooked examples of Jesus' claims to divinity. He writes, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly believed and behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. And this makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. Some of you might be feeling, well, gosh, this Jesus, he's a wonderful teacher and a wonderful example of love, but I don't see anywhere him explicitly claiming to be God. Here it is. If you were a committed Jewish religious person in that day overhearing and overseeing this incident, you could walk away with no other conclusion than that Jesus was making such a claim. And then Jesus doubled down on his claim when in verse 6 he refers to himself as the son of man. Now he's almost, in, he's almost definitely using this title as it's found in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel's giving a, a, a vision of how God's people would one day find victory in their suffering. And this is how he describes it. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Words and phrases and superlatives that would never be attributed to any human being, especially in monotheistic ancient Jewish culture. You could only conclude that there was something about this son of man that was man, but also somehow truly God which is what Jesus claimed, which is what we must encounter and grapple with. For some of you, maybe for the first time, it's an outrageous claim, except if it's true. Because Jesus wasn't just flexing his muscles, you see, when he finally does heal this paralytic. Jesus has authority do you know the authority of Jesus? But he uses his authority as the Son of Man, God himself, for a particular purpose here. And that is that he's offering not just forgiveness, he's offering the authoritative forgiveness of Jesus. Do you know this? The authoritative forgiveness of Jesus. Jesus is very clear in verse 6 and 7 why in this instance he displays his divine power. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So, he says to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. In other words, the reason Jesus publicly heals this man was to demonstrate publicly that he indeed had the authority to forgive sins. Because even after all that we've said about this promise of forgiveness, sometimes we're still left wondering. And it's important for you to say and know and believe that your sins are forgiven, but not simply because I say it, but because Jesus did it. That you have this guarantee of forgiveness bought by the blood of Jesus. Jesus isn't proposing that your sins are forgiven. He's promising it. And his promises aren't unreliable like yours and mine. His promises are unbreakable. God has said to you, your sins are forgiven. God has said to you in Isaiah 43, I even, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I remember your sins no more. But you must believe, not just because his word is sure, but because his death was effective on the cross. That Jesus served as our substitute for our sins. Jesus paid for your sins, not just as a human being, but also as God himself. His authority is built into his nature as the perfect sacrifice for you and me. You see, you are forgiven not just because God said so, 
but because on the cross, Jesus did so, literally taking the judgment that you and I deserve so that justice is not left looking any longer for punishment to be paid. Justice is no longer dissatisfied, but rather satisfied with the perfect payment of the blood of Jesus for you. Now Jesus doesn't see you as a released criminal, but he sees you as a bride beautifully adorned for her wedding. He doesn't just see you as a released criminal, he sees you as an adopted child. And each time he renews his extension of forgiveness, he's not begrudging you. Your God is not waiting for a chance to rub it in or looking for an opportunity to back out. Rather, your God is a father whose prodigal daughter, son, has run away. And he's been waiting for you the whole time. In fact, he's running to you, covering you with kisses, bringing you the best robe, killing the fatted calf and throwing a party because you've returned home. And he's saying to anyone who will hear, anyone who will listen, my son, my daughter was lost, but is now found. My daughter was dead, but now she's alive. My child was condemned, but now she is forgiven. You are forgiven. It's guaranteed by the cross of Christ, if you'll simply believe. You know, in this story, Jesus responds to the faith of those around him. What is it that sort of encourages Jesus to draw near? Was it their moral resume? Did, God, did Jesus do sort of a, a moral cat scan of the heart of these individuals? No, in verse 2, we're told that it was when Jesus saw their faith. Faith that didn't earn them Jesus' forgiveness, but a faith rather that's a humble awareness that you've got nothing, that you're helpless to save yourself, that you can't fix yourself, that you're out of answers and out of resources, not only for your broken body, but your broken soul, not only for your disabled legs, but for your disabled heart, a faith that is desperate for a savior, a, a faith that is clinging to the promises of God in Christ. Your sins, dear friends, are forgiven. Do you know the forgiveness of Jesus? Do you know his authority? Do you know the authoritative forgiveness of God in Christ? What would it look like for you to live in light of that this coming week? Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to believe and to receive deep in our hearts the good news of the forgiveness of our sins. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.